So this month we've been looking at the book of Jeremiah in a kind of 10,000 foot overview. And we've, we've called this uh, series uh, Dancing in the Storm. Uh, because Jeremiah, if you don't remember, he was a prophet during the absolute worst days of Israel and Judah. During the days when uh, Babylon came and, and tore down the walls of Jerusalem and took uh, the people of Israel hostage and, and took them exiled back to Babylon. And through that all, he was able to maintain a faith in, in God that, that sustained him, uh, that blessed him, that left him buoyant. He both wept and danced, oftentimes in the same verses. And uh, we are trying to learn from him. The first week, we looked at how Jeremiah was, was created, was formed, was knit together for this exact thing that God has called him to. And we drew comfort from that, that God is, has made us for the days that he's put us in as well. And then this last week, we looked at uh, the sins that Israel commit, had committed that, that brought these days about after generations of, of failing to repent and listen to his calls. And this week, we're going to really kind of dig into this idea of dancing in the storm. Uh, Jeremiah sends a letter to the people of Israel, to the exiles. They've been, uh, you, you know the stories, you read about them in, in Sunday school when you read the book of Daniel, right? Uh, Babylon came and took uh, all the, the most gifted people uh, in Jerusalem, the, the cream of the crop, the artisans and the, the craftsmen and the, the children who were showing the, the highest potential and took them all back to Babylon with them. It was, it was kind of Babylon's way uh, of extending their empire. They don't you don't want to destroy cities. That's not what you want to do. I, I, you probably have never created an empire. Let me tell you how. You don't want to destroy a city. That doesn't do you any good. You don't get any uh, tax money from that. You want to leave the city intact so they can, uh, you know, be producing farms and, and, and producing whatever they produce in that area, and you're receiving revenue from that. But you don't want them rebelling either. And so the way you keep them from rebelling is you basically take the, the best and the brightest. You take the leaders and you ship them all back to your, your town. And that's what they did. They brought them back to Babylon. And they left the rest of the people and said, look, we've done this once. You know we can do it again, but we don't want to. So just be good vassals. Just live in our kingdom. Send us our tributes. That's all you have to do. And so they took all these people back to Babylon. And they refused to go in. <laughs> they settled in a little refugee settlement out by the Kabar River. And they had their own prophets with them who were saying, don't go in, don't be citizens, don't bother to build houses. God's going to bring us back in two years. This is temporary. In any minute, we're going to be rescued. We're going to be taken out of here. And so Jeremiah writes a letter and sends it uh, through messengers to the, the people in Babylon to say, don't listen. This is going to last a lot longer than you think. God is going to rescue his people, but you're not going to live to see it. It'll be 70 years. So this is how you live when you find yourself in the place you never thought you would be. And, and I want us to kind of focus in on that idea, that thought. Have you ever found yourself in the place you just never thought you would be? 
the unemployment line, single, single again, funeral home. I think a lot of us have recently found ourselves in places we just never thought we would be. And God's wisdom for how to thrive in those situations is really the same now as it was then. And and overwhelmingly, he tells us this, if we will trust God with our past, that's hard, but if we will trust God with our past and trust him with our future, we'll be able to thrive in our present. If you will trust God with your past, make him the Lord of your past, and trust him with your future, then he will, he will show you how to thrive in the present. Please stand as we read this great text. Uh, one of the more popular texts from Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 29, starting with verse 4. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses, live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Thus far the reading of God's word. All men are like grass. All of our glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but not God's word. God's word stands forever. You may be seated. If we'll trust the Lord with our past and with our future, he will show us how to thrive in the present. What what do I mean by that? Well, when I I find myself in a place where I just don't know what to do, where where I'm where I didn't expect to be, where I never thought I would be, for wisdom, I usually look at our kitchen calendar. Because more years than not, our kitchen calendar is one of Mary Engelbright's. And Mary Engelbright is the one who made more popular than anyone else the phrase that supposedly supposedly comes from the St. Francis of Sal, bloom where you're planted. That was her wisdom. Bloom where you're, that's his wisdom, maybe. Definitely from her. Bloom where you're planted. What what does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, trust the planter. 
Trust the one who put you here. You didn't just happen to end up in this garden. You were brought to this garden. Now, God says something very difficult in this passage. And, um, well, let's just be honest. I didn't put verse 1 in there because it has a lot of names. And you all know how, how my redneck accent goes with uh, names. And I say them all wrong. And so I didn't put it in there. But if I had put verse 1 in, if you have a Bible open to Jeremiah 29, look at verse 1. Because it says this. And this year, Nebuchadnezzar came and took the Israelites into exile. And three verses later, God is writing those very exiles, and he says, I sent you into exile. Isn't that interesting? The worst thing that had ever happened in Jerusalem's history to that point. The worst thing that had ever happened to them. Nebuchadnezzar, evil, had come and taken them hostage, put them in chains, and marched them across the desert. And God has the audacity to say, I sent you. He put us here. He put us here. And sometimes that's, that's a bitter pill to swallow. It may be the bitterest pill to swallow. When you are alone, when you are sick, when you feel helpless to confess that God brought me here feels almost cruel. But I want you to hear this. If that's not true, then God has nothing to offer you. Because the only option to that being true is God had nothing to do with this. He was, was incompetent to stop it. And a God who's incompetent to stop it is really incompetent to help. And, and God himself doesn't shrink down from that. He says, yeah, I was responsible. I, I sent you there. And the only way for us to have hope is, is to embrace that the God who loves me brought me here. Andrew Murray was a, uh, a Christian kind of spiritual leader, spiritual guide. He wrote uh, with God in the School of Prayer and several other books on prayer, practicing the, the presence of God. And he, he has these four, uh, four kind of a fourfold formula to get through life's hardest trials. And, and number one was, remember this, he who brought me here loves me. Number two was, he, who, he will keep me and give me the grace I need. Three, he will make this trial a blessing. And four, he will bring me out in his perfect time. He will make this trial a blessing. And he will bring me out in his perfect time. And our faith that he's able to bring us out is, is only rests upon the fact that we think he's God and he can. And he can. That's hard. That had to be a bitter thing for Israel to hear. I sent you here. And they, they had to ask themselves the question, um, do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do I trust God, the God who sent me here? 
And I think they had to look back in their history as a nation, and they had to look back to one of their patriarchs named Joseph and remember how Joseph was kidnapped by his own brothers and thrown into a well, and and he was first left there to die and then sold into slavery. And they had to think about how Joseph was crying out to the Lord to be rescued from that well, but, but he wasn't. And, and he was sold into slavery. And then years later, he would be the very one who rescued Israel from drought and, and starvation. And Joseph himself would say, you meant it for evil, but God meant this for good. And so they, could, they, they had to draw strength from their history to know that even in this, God means this for good. We can trust him. So how much more us? How much more can we who have put the cross, the cross of Jesus, at the center of our faith for 2,000 years, how much more can we say that the Lord who did not spare his own son, his son who who cried bitterly, don't make me go to the cross. His son who cried out, why have you forsaken me? The son who said, into your hands I commend my spirit. If he can bring salvation for the entire world out of that, and if he loves us so much that he would give his son for us, how much more can we trust him with the trials that he calls us to walk through? How much more can we trust him that he has us where we are for a reason? The God who brought me here loves me. He will keep me and give me the grace I need. He will make this trial a blessing. He will bring me out in his perfect time. If we're going to dance in this storm, the first thing we have to do is trust the planter, trust the one who sent it. And then we live, he says. He says, bless the garden that you're in. Bless the garden that you're in. This is interesting. It's a fascinating passage. Uh, This passage has two of the most uh, widely used verses in it, uh, probably in Christianity today. And they're used by a a pretty diverse group of people. Those who are uh, urban church planters cool ones, not us. We're suburban church planters. There's nothing cool about me, okay? Uh, but, the, but the cool guys, you know, the ones, uh, forget, I'm not going to describe them to you. You know who I'm talking about. What do they all get tattooed across their, their arms? Live, seek the welfare of the city. Um, and there's, there's beauty to that, but, but let's, let's look at the whole thing here, okay? Let's really kind of this feel that what, what the Lord's saying in the, in the whole context. He says to Israel, plant, build houses, plant gardens, and get married. Plant gardens. It's interesting that he chose that, isn't it? Get married. Have children. Multiply. that sound familiar? What does it sound like? Does it sound like Genesis 1? When God put Adam and Eve in a garden and said, tend it and keep it and be fruitful and multiply? 
He's saying, do what I called you to do in the first place. Do what you were very created to do. Do what you, the, the thing that you are made for. The creation mandate is that we make this world better by being in it. And he is fascinating, though. He's not saying, I've put you in a garden. He's saying, plant a garden. Make Babylon, this place uh, of evil, this place that has been the very representation of evil to you for your entire life. I want you to make it into a garden. Make it beautiful. Don't just... You know, what were they doing? What was he doing? What were the people of Israel doing? What were the exiles doing? They were saying, we're not going to go. They were, they were crossing their arms and, and they were pouting, honestly. They were living in self-pity. They were saying, this is not what I planned on and I'm not going to be part of it. And I'm just going to sit here till God comes and rescues me. And that, that just describes me to a T. Like every week, that's me. I don't, want, I don't want this. I'll sit here till people start being nice to me. I'm going to go back to that church. They don't like me. I don't like them either. And God says to them and to us, don't wallow in self-pity. I created you to be productive. Be what I created you to be. Plant. Make it better. Work with your hands. Uh, kind of echo, the Apostle Paul echoes this in 1 Thessalonians 4. Seek to live a quiet life and to work with your hands. Whatever it is, whatever little corner of Babylon you find yourself in, make it better. Make it better. In the last year, when I was just the, in the deepest, darkest places I've ever been, there were, time, there were days, you know, we couldn't do anything anyway because of the pandemic. And there were days when, like, the only thing I could do was grab a garbage bag and go walk the streets picking up a litter. Like, this stuff drives me crazy. Nobody else seems to see it. And I'm going to make 101st between my house and Mingo better. That's what I was created to do. And every time I drove by, I'm like, it's not as bad as it was. I did something. It's what we're created to do. And replicate. uh, Multiply. Now, we have to make some New Testament adjustments to that text, don't we? Uh, Adam and Eve, if Adam and Eve wanted to create more images of God, what did they have to do? Have children. If if, If Jews in the Old Testament wanted to have more Jews in the world, what did they do? Have children. If Christians want to have more Christians in the world, what do we do? Evangelize. We share the gospel. Nobody gets out of this. Uh, I had an Old Testament professor, the one who explained this to me, Richard Pratt. I don't know if he really did this. I can't imagine someone doing this, but if I could, he would. And so he supposedly went to see uh, a friend of his in the hospital right after she had had a baby and uh, she was so happy and glowing and all those things you know it was a couple days later the glow doesn't come for a while and um but she was all happy and glowing and she looked up at him and she said i've done it i've i fulfilled the creation mandate she was one of his students and and I, I've, I've multiplied and he looked at her and said not yet not until that child names the name of jesus that's that's what god wants from us more images of Christ, not just humans, 
And so none of us are free from that mandate. We're all constantly carrying out that mandate. And whether it be through raising children, assisting parents in the nurture and the admonition of raising their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. You know that sentence you'll hear me say every time we do a baptism. Uh, that I mess up every single time. Or, or more importantly, through evangelizing and sharing uh, the light, the hope that we have in Christ with the lost, we are making, we're multiplying, we are sharing the gospel. We're, we're expanding God's family. And then thirdly, he says, seek the, the welfare, the shalom, the peace, the hope, uh, the, the completeness uh, of the city. Now, Like, that's the most unheard of, unexpected phrase probably in the Bible. To tell Israelites who have made Babylon into the symbol for evil, right? It's kind of still the symbol for evil. In the New Testament, it's kind of the symbol for evil. Read the book of Revelation. Uh, you know, the, 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 one of the first uh, hallelujahs, one of the last hallelujahs will cry out is, Alas, Babylon has fallen. That great enemy of God is gone. And God is telling them in the literal Babylon, make it better. Seek the shalom of the city. Seek to make it a better place. That's what God's people do. Wherever we go, we seek to make it better. To seek to make it, we seek to let them know this is God's kingdom. He's here. I, uh, I found out a few weeks ago that uh, one of my, just the, dearest friends I had back in Cleveland, Mississippi, uh, had died. And so I, I called my friend, the pastor there, and confirmed that she had passed away. And we talked about how sweet she was for a while. And then he said this. He said, you know, she died just like she lived. The, when she went into the hospital for the last time, she took her jewelry box. And she gave the jewelry away to the nurses generous to the end what was she doing God is sending me to the place I never wanted to go but I'm going to seek the welfare of the hospital I'm going to seek the shalom and I'm going to let people know that one of God's children has been here how do we do that? How do you have the, the energy to do that to the very end? By looking forward to spring. What does God say? He says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans for good, not for evil. And he begins talking about how he's going to bring them back. But it's so important to get this. You're not going to see it. <laughs> it's going to be 70 years. Everybody who's reading this letter, if you're old enough to read this letter, you're not coming back. And, and there's a beauty and a challenge to that, right? The beauty is God has good plans for us. The challenge is all you have to do is hold on till death. Can you live for what's beyond your life? Can you invest your life for others, for the next generation? 
That's important. It's hard. It's hard for us to give ourselves away for things that we don't see. It's hard for us to sacrifice ourselves for the good of the church, for the good of the future generations of the church. It's hard, but, but it's important. The Bible is very clear, and we know from experience what you believe about the future has incredible impacts on life today. Do we believe that our regrets will be redeemed and healed? Do you believe that that future day when you finally see Jesus, your regrets will be redeemed and healed? I think that's the hardest thing about about this whole Christianity thing. Truly believing what we all say we believe about the future. And and that was brought home stingingly to me by my, my counselor in the last year for whatever reason. When my mom died two years ago, I refused. I don't understand why. I, 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 have no, I can't figure this one out. Feel free to psychoanalyze me later. Um, I refused to let the hope of heaven comfort me. I don't know why. I just didn't. And I was haunted by this idea that, that she had died and I had been a disappointment to her. And finally, at just the right time when I was ready to hear it, my counselor said to me, well, don't you believe she's with Jesus? She's not mad at you now. And letting that future hope become a comfort to me now is the only thing that heals. That promise of of lasting importance, that the resurrection is true. Can we, can we sink our anchor there? Can we sink our anchor in the, the belief that one day, only that day, when we see Jesus face to face and he wipes our tears from our eyes, that our, our scars will be redeemed and healed? Can we believe in that day? If we can believe that, then we can thrive today then we can live for those around us today. But it's hard. And we've got to be honest. And we've got to admit what we don't believe. And we've got to invite God in to heal our unbelief and to make us whole. I think that's why it's called living by faith. I don't like it. It's hard. but it's the only way to find life. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, I pray that you give us the grace uh, to live by faith. I pray that we would swallow that hard pill and, and, and admit that you were with us on our darkest days and you brought us to places we never thought we would go. And I pray, Father, that we would have that true faith that looks to the future and believes that we will be with you one day. And I pray that those two foundations of faith would give us the ability to live today in a way that thrives and makes this world more like your home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.